Greetings. This is the fourth fourth installation of the House Podcast, and today we have a special treat. I know in some of the other episodes we had a kind of open banter about uh, different topics, but today we have the distinct pleasure of having Dr. Michael Lindsay, one of our esteemed classmates and hallmates from freshman year, as the rest of the brothers are, uh, to join us to talk about the subject of mental health. Dr. Lindsay is a noted scholar in the fields of child, adolescent, child and adolescent mental health, as well as a leader in the search for knowledge and solutions to generational poverty and inequality. He's the executive director of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at the New York University. Executive director of the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU, New York University. The Martin Silver Professor of Poverty Studies at NYU, Silver School of Social Work, and an Aspen Health Innovators Fellow. He also leads a university-wide strategies to reduce an inequality initiative from the NYU McSilver Institute. At the NYU McSilver Institute, Dr. Lindsay leads a team of researchers, clinicians, social workers, and other professionals who are committed to creating new knowledge about the root causes of poverty, developing evidence-based interventions to address its consequences, and rapidly translating their findings into action through policy and best practices. Among their latest work is a three-year research grant from the National Institute of Mental Health to study the effectiveness of a novel treatment intervention for keeping Black adolescents engaged in depression treatment. Previously, Dr. Lindsay was an associate professor at the University of Maryland School of Social Work and a faculty affiliate at the University of Maryland Department of Psychiatry Center for School of Mental Health. Dr. Lindsay leads the working group of experts supporting the Congressional Black Caucus Emergency Task Force on Black Youth Suicide and Mental Health, which created the report, Ring the Alarm, The Crisis of Black Youth Suicide in America. Also, he is a standing member of Centers for Substance Abuse Prevention, National Advisory Council of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and a distinguished fellow of the National Academies of Practice and Social Work. As well, he's on the editorial board of the Journal Administration and Policy in Mental Health and Mental Health Services Research. Dr. Lindsay holds a PhD in social work and an MPH from the uh, Master of Public Health from the University of Pittsburgh and a Master of Social Work from Howard University and a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology from our dear old Morehouse College. So this man is eminently qualified to talk about this subject. So uh, with that, we're going to have more of an um, uh, interaction with Dr. Lindsay. We all have questions we brought forward for him and we're going to kick it off with Lou uh, with the first question for Dr. Lindsay to kick up our discussion. First question I have is uh, why is it so hard for black men to uh, ask for help? First of all, I want to say uh, thank you all for having me on this uh, great podcast. I love the idea and the fact that we continue to, uh, you know, flourish our relationship that we developed when we were all like 17, 18 years old. It's just amazing. So thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, why is it so hard for Black men to ask for help? Um, a number of things come to mind, Lou, related to that question. Uh, sometimes, you know, help asking for help is like the a thousand pound elephant in a room that uh, we don't want to talk about, uh, particularly as men, because we're socialized to, uh, to, to be tough, strong. You know, men don't cry, uh, man it up, all those kinds of uh, things that we've been socialized to embrace. And so sometimes to ask for help, whether it's related to, um, you know, marital problems or, you know, problems on the job, whatever the case may be, we think that if we do ask for help, we're going to be viewed as weak. Um, viewed as if we were not able to handle, you know, our problems as quote unquote men. And so I think for us um, as black men, there's been an overemphasis on, um, on, on masculinity, to be quite honest, in terms of how we define uh, manhood, right? And so we have all kinds of, um, you know, because I'm among brothers, I can say it, we have all kinds of flawed thinking about what it means to be a man, right? Um, you know, being a man is not about 
how strong you are or how many, you know, women you might be able to quote unquote conquer or any of that kind of stuff, right? It's really about um, your ability to tap into your vulnerabilities to acknowledge when you do have pain and seek help for it, right? And, you know, our inability to ask for help is connected to a lot of the preventable things that happen to us in our community, you know, as Black men. When you think about preventable diseases, and I'll talk about this um, later, but if, when you think about all of the preventable, preventable diseases, whether it's diabetes, hypertension, um, we can prevent those kinds of diseases by how we live our lives in terms of our diet, whether we exercise, all those kinds of things. Um, but also we can um, prevent those diseases by simply asking for help, going to the doctor on a regular visit, uh, annual visit, uh, following through on what is prescribed by, by doctors. I think that while we, you know, sort of reflect on the importance of getting our annual checkup, it's just as, for physical health, it's just as important to have a therapist that we can talk to about our mental health challenges. And we all, all have, all of us, every one of us on this um, podcast right now has emotional, psychological struggles. At some, at some point, warrant professional help, right? I mean, the person who says that they don't have it is probably the person who should be the first in line knocking down the door to get help from exactly. mental health professional, right? I mean, we all do. And, and in fact, you know, um, it makes us better people, right? When you can take care of those emotional and psychological challenges whether it's your fears about, you know, like I used to fear, for example, my brother died when he was 27 years old. I used to fear, even when I was at Morehouse with you all, that I would never live past 27. You know, I'm 48 years old right now. But the psychological stuff that we've experienced in our lives, um, you know, from a historical perspective and in a contemporary perspective, it affects our, our, our daily lives, right? And so... I think that, um, you know, just that notion of, you know, if you ask for help, then that means you're weak, um, is really a, a detriment to our, to, our, to our livelihoods, right? Like, it's a detriment to how we show up as, as fathers, as, as sons, as brothers, whatever the case may be. It's a detriment when you can't acknowledge, you know, any of your struggles and, 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 and see it as an opportunity to address them and build on them so that you don't repeat any of the, you know, bad patterns or maladaptive functioning that we all have embraced at one point in our lives as it relates to not addressing our emotional or psychological pain. So, you know, all those things collectively you know, I think really um, reflect on the difficulty that we have as Black men in particular um, when it comes to asking for help. Well, I guess you yes, I have a follow-on from that. So if you think about, you know, like things going on right now in Georgia where the man got killed a few months ago while he was out of job, <clears throat> him down and killed him and the way that a lot of Black people are beasts and, you know, just even the, the violence in our communities uh, can create kind of a PTSD type of uh, type of effect in our community. But back to the thing in Georgia, how do you think racism and discrimination impacts the mental health of black men? You know, it has a huge, Carl B, it has a huge impact in terms of uh, how we show up uh, and, and how we relate as black men um, and, and how we, you know, show up in, and, and experience our families. Uh, it has, sometimes we can't even quantify or measure the impact that racism and discrimination has on our psyche. Whether it relates to 
actually experiencing it yourself. Uh, and I'm sure that we all have had, as black men, we've had to deal with our share of microaggressions, you know, whether it's related to how we might get on an elevator, um, we're the only person of color and, and someone, um, you know, like braces themselves or clutches their purse or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, all those kinds of things weigh in on our, our psyche. And so, you know, even when we, you know, experience it by virtue of seeing it on television or seeing it on social media and the constant loop of re-experiencing, uh, you know, that tragic incident that might have been or clearly been uh, has been related to racism and discrimination like the incident you refer to in Georgia like that has an impact on us I, I certainly you know came away from seeing that feeling very vulnerable uh, as a black man uh, you know worried about you know whether I can jog in communities that uh, I'm just sort of jogging through right like I'm not you know, I don't, I may not live in that community, but you know, it just makes you hypersensitive mm -hmm. to all of those kinds of experiences because you're afraid, that, you know, it could happen to you, particularly when you see someone who is, you know, black or brown and, you know, you can relate to that person because of your ethnicity. So, you know, racism and discrimination has um, a, a huge impact. You know, um, there's a, uh, a, psych a psychologist, I'm sorry, he's a sociologist that I respect um, at Harvard. His name is David Williams. Um, he and some colleagues led a study that showed that if you live in the vicinity or proximity of uh, a police-involved shooting of a, a Black person, that it actually has um, the, um, the impact of leading to psychological stress, right? Um, you don't even have to be, in, you know, mostly mm. involved with it in terms of, you know, knowing the victim or having some kind of interaction, like just the experience of, uh, you know, it happening in your community or, you know, nearby neighborhood, it impacts you. And I think that it impacts all of us, even as we like see, as I mentioned, that constant loop of, you know, that person being gunned down uh, in such a heinous way. So, yeah, I mean, racism that's, and discrimination. That's kind of like, like that feeling you get when you, uh, your house get broken into or your car gets broken into. You always have that back of the feeling like you're overchecking after, it's, after you get those, maybe you might get those items back, but you might start to overcheck every time you come in the house. You go a different way home and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, that's, 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 I mean, that's what's going on in my head. Because like, oh, I've been violated. It's a person that doesn't even know me has been in my house. They, they touch this drawer, that they go in this closet, you know. Yeah, the psychological term for that, Chuck, is called hyperarousal, right? Oh. So you're hyperaroused oh, by virtue of having an experience that, um, you know, was harmful to you in some way, shape, or form, right? And so we all are hyper-aroused because we see those experiences from afar, if not having to deal with them personally ourselves. You know, it's funny. It's like it's like you walk around with a weight, you know, in terms of this kind of thing. And I was thinking it, it applies all over across the board. I remember I was in L.A. once, and... Uh, you know, grew up in the South, you're used to people clutching their purse and they see you and being unnerved by your presence. And I remember I was at the grocery store and this cute little white lady got out of her car, seized my grizzly ass and just kept on walking. She might even say good morning. The fact that she didn't have that response was, was like, wait a minute, don't, you know, it still was unnerving and it's crazy that we are so hyper aroused to, you know, you use your word about that kind of thing. Even if it's not, if, even if it doesn't happen, it still is an event. Yeah. All right, well, yeah. let's go move to, um, to Crump. I think you got a question for us, right? Yeah, man. Um, Dr. Lindsay, what is trauma and how does it, um, how, how would you say trauma manifests itself amongst our people? 
black in the black community? Yeah, I'm at a basic level, Crump. Uh, trauma is going through a distressing event, right? Um, whether it's related to a car, <clears throat> a car accident, um, maybe a physical injury that was unintentional, obviously. Um, you did not expect it and it happened. Um, or whether it's uh, related to things like uh, family disruption, for example, divorce is traumatic, right? Um, and so, and so, trauma is any sort of distressing event that has happened in your life. Now, um, what we often sort of um, see from a clinical perspective is the accumulation of uh, traumatic events, or even the intensity of the traumatic event that could lead someone to experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Mm -hmm. And so post-traumatic stress disorder is the re-experiencing of the trauma uh, related to that distressing um, recollection of the event, flashbacks or nightmares. Uh, you might feel it, and I often tell people that anxiety, for example, is something it's related to trauma. It's something that you feel in your body, right? So when you're traumatized at the level of having sort of PTSD, you might experience emotional numbness. Um, and so that means that like you just cut off all your emotional feeling or expression. And given the situation or the context, you should have some emotion related to it, but you just sort of block it in your mind because you mm -hmm. want to avoid the re-experiencing of it, or you might avoid places, people, or activities that remind you of that trauma. And so I talked about hyperarousal, and so like PTSD is associated with increased arousal, which can lead to things like difficulty sleeping or concentrating. You may feel jumpy or on edge, uh, or you may be easily irritated or angered. And so I think then that when you talk about traumatic events, those are the kind of things that can lead to um, some real difficult uh, functioning as it relates to your emotional and psychological well-being. So for example, if you, if you grew up in a, uh, a violent neighborhood, um, right? Um, like for example, I grew up in a violent neighborhood and I constantly, you know, sort of was on threat or alert or just hyper aroused in any kind of situation because I always imagined that violence was going to pop off, right? And so, um, you know, it impacted my life and then I really didn't get the kind of help for it ultimately until I actually went into my own therapy to process all of that. Um, and so, you know, trauma is something that we all experience. Um, you know, racism and discrimination can be traumatizing, um, you know, particularly if it happens in the work context. So, so imagine then that you were passed over for promotion or, uh, or something else happened because you perceived, uh, perhaps rightly so, but you perceived that it was related to racism and discrimination. That's traumatizing. And it has an, Im an impact on our health and our emotional, psychological health, and it has an impact on our physical health. Mm. Real quick, I just want to follow up on that. How do you, um, what is your answer to actually how we can manage that, you know, manage that trauma, you know, because what is the solution to that? What do we do to help minimize it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that you have to acknowledge it, first and foremost. Um, you know, if you feel um, irritable or angered easily, it could be related to some unresolved trauma, right? And so I think you have to take a step back and sort of force yourself to wonder, why is it that I'm easily irritated or angered? You know, is it related to something that I have not fully processed? So just checking in with yourself and trying to get a sense of what is the precipitant to your, um, your anger or irritability, frustration about things is really important. I think talking about it uh, with the professional, uh, talking about it with your family members, your loved ones, um, significant others is, is, is really important so that 
you can begin to get some support from that loved one in terms of maybe processing <clears throat> through formal mental health treatment. Um, but I think that the first and foremost thing is just to really acknowledge it and then, you know, take, take stock of how it impacts your life. And if it impacts your life in, um, in harmful ways, um, such that it, it, it influences how you function, then that's a, a clear signal that you probably should be seeking professional help for it. Man, good, good stuff. Hey, Chuck, I think you got one for us? Yes. Um, Self-medication, Mike. Um, describe what is um, meant by this. Yeah, I think it's something that we do a lot. And to be honest with you, fellas, <laughs> this is something that prom prompted me to go into the field of mental health, to be honest with you, right? Because, I mean, I, I used to grow up seeing people, man, um, that particularly in the crack epidemic, and I know we all can relate to this, and, you know, you all have seen this yourselves, but, you know, that young sister or brother, man, who was just living beautiful lives, and all of a sudden, something traumatic may have happened, and they turned to drugs, right, to cope. So self-medication is this, this notion that you use drinking or, uh, or illicit drugs for comfort, right? Mm -hmm. You use it as a coping mechanism um, and you often use it in lieu of formal mental health treatment or other kinds of mental health support, right? So as opposed to maybe talking about things that's going on in your lives, even with your loved ones, right? You may turn to the bottle or you mm -hmm. may smoke a blunt or something like that. And that's how you cope. You're like, yo, that's my only strategy. That's what I do. That's what makes me feel good. It numbs the pain. That's mm -hmm. that I don't have to think about that, you know, whatever I'm going through or, or whatever the case may be, right? So self-medication is this notion that you're using these kinds of, uh, you know, like I said, illicit drugs or drinking as a mechanism to deal with whatever you're going through. Even if you come home from work, right? Mm -hmm. And you've had a stressful day and like your go-to is that you're drinking on a daily basis or you're smoking whatever you need to smoke on a daily basis just to cope, right? That's like a form of self-medication. Is it, if you were to, is, is there a good form of self-medication? Yeah, I mean, um, you can cope um, by like meditation, um, I, you know, I uh, fully believe in that and I try to do that on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, you, know, you can look at things from a spiritual perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, you may, you know, um, I don't know, pray about it or whatever, whatever, whatever you do. If you're agnostic, you know, whatever you do, like, you know, just, you know, you, you do something other than picking up that substance uh, as your go-to, right? Yeah. And then, you know, it's really problematic um, Chuck, if you feel like you can't cope without it, like you got to do that. You got to have that drink. You got to smoke that blunt or whatever you're doing every day, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes twice or three times a day, right? If you feel like you got to do it and you can't get through the day without doing it, then that's an indication that get cope, that your self-medication can actually be problematic. Now, a drink... Or whatever you do is, is, is cool every now and then. But if you have to function around that and you can't live without it, then that may be an early sign or a clear sign that it's problematic. Clocking to these bars and are struggling with the bars being closed during this, this uh, COVID-19 quarantine, the bars are a source of, uh, of, of shade tree mental health. You know, your bartender yeah. and, your, and your patrons at the bar those of you are like part-time psychiatrists. And without that in your life, and a lot of people are losing their minds for real. Go yeah, ahead, let me to cut you off. Yeah, no, no, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to make sure that riding my bike wasn't uh, <laughs> detrimental. Cause I know, I, yeah, I like, I yearn for that. Yeah, and sometimes, right, like that's a healthy coping mechanism. Like if you okay. feel like you have to exercise every day, um, you know, like that's, that's good for your health. Yeah. And we know that like anything that you do in terms of putting substances in your body, you know, can have long-term consequences. Yeah. 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 All right, good deal. Quasi, give us one. 
Yeah, good, Dr. Lindsay. How you doing, man? Glad to have you on. My question for us is, uh, please explain how mental health is connected to physical health. Yeah, I sort of talked about this a little bit earlier, right? Um, what we, we, we sort of frame this as comorbidity or comorbid, um, you know, health or symptom expression. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, what I mean by that is like, depression or anxiety can actually lead to one having high blood pressure or it might lead a person to overeat and you're not eating healthy to the point where you may develop uh, high cholesterol or, or mm. diabetes and you're doing it as a function of like you know when I eat and all that sort of stuff, you know, like sweets or whatever the case may be, it makes me feel good. Mm -hmm. And that's like connected to perhaps how you are dealing with your stress. <clears throat> um, stress related to the job or stress related to the family situation, stress related to your finances, whatever the case may be, which that can evoke anxiety, stress, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, or depression related to those, those challenges. And so then it has whatever happens in our mind, because, you know, the body is, as you know, guys, it's all one unit and one part of the body affects the whole. So if you're depressed or anxious or traumatized, uh, it's going to have an impact on your physical health, whether that's related to how, like I said, you diet, whether you overeat or undereat. You know, whether you self-medicate to deal with the stress, um, there's this connection that um, we often don't think about, right? And so, as I mentioned earlier, Black men, you know, suffer the most from preventable diseases than any other group, right? Things that we can prevent. And when you look at all of the indicators of, of health, or you know, at the at the worst ending you know, sort of spectrum of things like you know diabetes, hypertension, um, all those kinds of issues, we're at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And I submit, humbly submit, that it is directly related to our mental health. Our mental health is everything. So it's not just the fact we like pork chops and macaroni and cheese. Why do we like that? That's you know, like, you know what? That's a good question. That is a yeah, really good question. Yeah. Why do we like that? Why do we feel like we have to eat that? It's is a program from like slavery? Like, what do you think it is? I mean, I think it, I, I don't know if it's programming from slavery. I just think that. I mean, we did start by eating the loin of the hog and then we eventually kind of made the best out of it. They threw everything, the scraps to us. We had to turn it into, you know, delectable. But that, that, and that's a good point. The whole notion of comfort foods comes from the very fact that we are, you know, we, we're trying to make the best out of a, 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 a situation that we come from, right? Yeah, but let me, let, 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 me, let me put a structural lens on this, right? So when you look at our, you know, most of the communities that black and brown people live in, particularly when they're low resource or poor communities, we see a proliferation of liquor stores, of fast food uh, joints. Yeah. yeah, like, right, food deserts, right? And yeah. so um, and so some of that, you know, I don't want to put it all on us in terms of, you know, how we govern ourselves. I mean, some of it is structural. And if you don't know any better because of what's proximal to you, then right. how can Carry you out. do better? Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, mean I, think, I think the economics plays a part. It's affordable, too, you know? Absolutely. That's the other thing, yeah. I mean, you can, you can, you can get a, a full meal from McDonald's for like $3. Yeah, and a water. Because, because in college, we didn't care. I mean, when we were younger, man, we didn't care what we put in that body. We, would, we went out to eat over how much it was. The first thing we asked, how much it cost. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, it was about a week was up. like two ninety nine. Yeah, you know. I mean, remember yeah, Rally Burgers? Yeah. Yeah. Checkers, all that stuff, man. All yeah. That stuff. We we live off that, and that stuff is like 
those 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 entities are incredibly close to us mm-hmm. and, and and incredibly convenient for us to to access. And right? they cook every bit of that shit in large, straight up large. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's crazy, man. Um, so yeah, so I mean, I I think there's a structural argument which we just talked about, but I also think that you know when um, when we are dealing with that stress, we do have a tendency to, um, you know, want to fix that stress by coping. And that coping, you know, can lead us to choose unhealthy um, options. Cool, Kay, what you got? Ben, first of all, Mike, thank you for um, coming on our podcast. We really, really appreciate taking time out. I know you're a busy guy. Hang on, it's his podcast, too. Yeah, 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 it is, it is. It's, you know, we, bro, we just appreciate it, man. But you, you talked about this earlier about the family involvement, about, you know, understanding mental health. Man, could you, could you I mean, you, I know you, you touched on it a little earlier, but could you delve into that a little bit more? How important is it for our families to understand the mental health of black men? What are your thoughts on that? You know what? Um, it's incredibly important. And, you know, it should be a common part of our vernacular in the family. Like, for example, you know, I think each of you all have kids. You can, you know, simply ask your kids on a daily basis, how are they feeling? Checking in with them about how they're doing, right? Um, and, and, And begin to model for them the importance of being in touch with your your mental wellness, if you will, right? Um, in terms of the stressors that they are contending with on a daily basis, you should be able to have conversations with them about that and, and model for them what it means to be in touch with those things in your life. And then if there's some challenges related to them, then obviously you can point them to the sources uh, for help and support. In the same way, you know, I think that our, our loved ones are the first line of defense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when our loved ones know how we're doing, uh, you know, it means, it can mean everything. It can be all the difference in terms of like, whether or not we connect to uh, formal treatment or going to the doctor for an issue, right? Like it's incredibly important. In fact, I've studied this and there are all kinds of theories on this in that when you are actually dealing with stress um, or in some kind of pain from a physical perspective, the first person you turn to is a loved one. You know, mm. you, don't, you, don't, you don't readily go to the doctor you tell somebody in, in your family, damn, my head hurts or my back is hurting. Like somebody you tell um, that you information. Long enough, they need to tell you to take your ass to the doctor. Right. And so, and, so, and so that's what I mean, right? Like that can be all the difference in the world in terms of like whether or not you get the appropriate care for that, that issue. I don't mean to cut you off, but well, I didn't cut you off, but I just, I just want to ask this question. You say you turn to a loved one. Now, I was married uh, for eight years. And when I got sick, or I felt some type of way. I was always calling my mom. Yeah. It might be why you the person. I didn't go to my wife for, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I, and I, I would always wonder why. I was always like, I just didn't feel like, even though she might have tried, she just couldn't do it. Well, well, you you go to a trusted person, um, and, and it could be it could be your significant other, it could be your mother, father, whoever the case may be, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're gonna go to somebody who's your go-to. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so, they then should be able to know, and that's why it's important for your family members to. To, to be knowledgeable of like mental health stuff. Because again, I, I start off by saying that mental health 
is oftentimes the thousand pound elephant in a room that we're not talking about. Yeah, right. We, 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 we pass that thing on. We don't want to deal with it. You know, we all had the quote unquote crazy cousin that is shift, shifted off somewhere and we all just be like, yeah, you know, cousin such and such is crazy. Yeah. Or we got that drunk uncle, all of us, <laughs> somebody is, you know, has, has that drunk uncle who always is be like be tripping and, yeah. you know, uh, all that stuff. We just say, oh, that's uncle, uncle such and such. He's always, he's uncle a Carl. drunk. Uncle Carl. <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but, I mean, here's the thing, man. When we don't, and this is why I'm so passionate about this. When we when we're not able to identify those those issues as mental health challenges, then you know we're not able to get um, you know folks to 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 care, um, and that's really really important. Um, you know, I, I had a, I had a buddy uh, uh, you know some years ago, a good friend of mine who was dealing with some stuff, and ended up being shot by the police. Damn. Um, because, you know, he, he was just dealing with those, those mental health challenges. And, and my thing is, is this, right? Like we as family members, we have a role to play because that person is coming to us first. And so then we have to be able to say, you know what, I'm gonna stop whatever I'm doing because this is problematic and we're going to get you to the, to the doctor. You know what I mean? Like this mental health stuff is something we cannot ignore because it could mean the difference between life and death. And then Mike, the mental health, one question, is it hereditary? And if so, how is it possible to break that chain? So, so, so Chuck, it's a great question. Um, it's a complex interaction between hereditary and environment, mm -hmm. right? Um, the environment is certainly the stimulus, um, you know, that can conjure up all kinds of, you know, reactions in terms of your mental health. But yes, it can be passed on. Like if you have a family history of psychosis, then you may be vulnerable to experiencing psychosis. Like, schizophrenia or one of the other kinds of psychotic disorders or if you have a family history of depression you may be vulnerable to it um, but it is often incited or it comes up by environmental stimuli right mm. so if there's like a traumatic event or if you're living in a um a, a very caustic environment that's characterized by you know violence and other kinds of things like that, you know, then it can uh, precipitate those mental health issues. Yeah, that's that's interesting because you know I'm a father, and I got daughters, and I'm, and and I got, you know, I take care of my daughters on a regular. Everybody knows how I feel about my daughters, but I'm with, I'm with them, and I might see something uh, that they might do that I know I used to do when I was younger. Uh, and I'm like, man, I, did, I didn't like that. Then I questioned myself, damn, do I, do I, do I not like myself? Mm. That's, why I was, that's why I asked myself, I mean, do I like you? Because it's something that my daughters are doing that I used to do. And then I'm saying, damn, do I, I, you know, and I'm, that's the question I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, uh, no question. I mean, deal, when you do that, it's like, that's what I'm saying. Is there, is there a strategy or a technique or something we could do to break that cycle of, of, of them adapting our, yeah. our, our habits, bad yeah. habits? Yeah, yeah, Chuck. I mean, I think like, you know, calling it out and being conscious of it is the first order of business, right? Like as long as you are tracking it, um, that becomes incredibly important. Like, for example, um, I have a family history of diabetes, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I love sweets. 
um, all kinds of chocolates and cakes and all that kind of stuff. And so I know then that if I don't want to develop diabetes, I'm going to have to monitor my diet. I'm going to have to watch what I eat. And because I know I have a family history of that, um, if I had kids or when I have kids, I'm going to monitor their diet and socialize them around healthy eating because, you know, I want to break the cycle. You know, I'm trying to do it myself, but I want to also break the cycle with my kids. And so that being said, if you see anything that, you know, hereditary or part of your family history, you can reprogram your kids in a way that they don't experience those things by giving them the support that they need um, around that issue. You know what I mean? So I think just being conscious of it and calling it out and being intentional in your parenting is, is the key. That's real talk. Thanks, Mike. Here from JT. So JT, why don't you wake up and uh, look at the camera and give us some engagement. <laughs> uh, this has been a very <laughs> in, insightful, um, important topic that, you know, we can't um, ignore. It's something that is important just as much as taking care of your physical health or finding a place to stay. And so I appreciate Dr. Lindsay coming on. I think we talked about this a little bit, um, Dr. Lindsay, particularly around like, how do you achieve mental wellness? And I think that you've mentioned some things in terms of, you know, if you have a coping mechanism, you know, on the side of not being so vice related, but let's say it's yoga or it's sports, yeah. but just maybe talk a, bit, a little bit about how do you get to a point and how do you do so without maybe having someone that you could call up that may be a therapist or you can't afford a therapist? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think that you have to develop your ritual, your wellness ritual, um, and, and, and try to be consistent with it. Because the fact of the matter is this, we all are experiencing stress. Yeah. If, we watch the, if we watch the news, we're experiencing stress. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, whether it's related to our job, family situation, or just our, you know, what we take in, um, you know, we're, we're dealing with stress. And so you have to have some kind of wellness ritual, you know, whether that's, you know, you may like reading or, um, you know, I like, I like to meditate, right? That's one of my, yeah. my, my, uh, that's part of my wellness ritual. Um, you know, obviously diet and exercise are really important. Um, I can't tell you enough of how important like, you know, diet and exercise are. Like, I, I literally feel stress taken off me when I exercise. And I'm sure you yeah, all can relate. Too. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. You know I mean? like, definitely. I literally feel it lifting off me. Yeah. You know? Um, and so I think cycling. those things become... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cycling the same thing. I, yeah. I, uh, Chuck, I was on my bike this morning. Um, riding through the New York City streets. And it just, it just, you just go, it's, I mean getting so it's a zone where nobody can interfere nobody I mean, you have that yeah i've been running probably more so now in the last yeah. three or four months than i ever have yeah and, uh, matter of fact i just got on that five miles i think the last time i talked to you i was on that four yeah but like the endorphins that are uh that come you know that come to your brain or that are yes. released i mean it's amazing man how, man. Much, how high and how good i feel just afterwards, you know, that two or three hours after a run. Exactly. Yeah, y'all inspire me. I think I'm going to start working out first thing Monday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, if you, especially if you can get some, like, cardio in. Yeah. Um, that, that's really, really important. But, you know, develop a ritual so that, you know, you can focus on, on being healthy and well and, and being 100% on top of your game, right? Like, I've been I've been enjoying the the Last Dance series, looking at how you know how Jordan, you know, really focused on his his yeah. wellness, at, at, you know, from a competitive level. But I mean, he did things that conditioned his body right. and his mind to be responsive to the height of the competition he faced. Yep. And so I think then that you know developing that wellness ritual is really important, but as a part of that, though, here's one thing that I really, really want to, 
you know, just emphasize here, um, vulnerability and, and, and asking for help or acknowledging when you need support on something is part of that wellness ritual. Like you can't be well if you're not vulnerable around, you know, your weaknesses and acknowledging them and, and getting support for them, right? Like, I think we, 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 we guard ourselves against being vulnerable so often and it has negative consequences, you know? And so I think then that if you can insert with whatever your ritual is, uh, the importance of being vulnerable and asking for help and acknowledging your weakness is, is powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Mike, hey, quick question. Um, on the point of asking for help, uh, more, and more specifically with the topic of therapy or counseling, can you speak to um, to the benefits of, of, of going through counseling, uh, like, you know, dealing with the different stresses of either work, marriage, or what have you? Let me tell y'all something, man. Real talk. When I first became a therapist, I had to go into therapy myself. Is right. that like a, a thing that you would do just to learn the tricks of the trade or like it was something in your life that made you decide that you needed therapy or the fact that you were educated about therapy that told you you needed therapy? Yeah, no. So um, it was, it's sort of like a requirement. You know, okay. every therapist should be in their own therapy. Yeah. Right. So that they can, you know, make sure that whatever, you know, feedback or even how they listen to what a person's problems or situations might be it doesn't get clouded in their own stuff, right? And so for me, I'm just, I'm about to share with y'all something very powerful. Um, you know, I grew up in a single parent home um, raised by my mom and I didn't realize how angry I was about my father not being in my life until I went to therapy. And at that time I was like, um, I was a young therapist. I was like 24, 25 years old. And I didn't, I, it took me that long in my life to realize that I was angry yes. with my dad. And therapy uncovered that. And it showed me how my anger with my dad impacted my relationships, even with my significant others. I had no idea that all of that was how I showed up in relationships. And so I think then that therapy becomes a really powerful asset in terms of you being 100% of who you can be. That's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, I got, it's a couple of things that's, that's been devastating that happened to me in my life that's had a, a major impact, but I think the most, uh, was divorce, uh, being the fact that I, I wanted to keep the family together uh, because I went through uh, a mother and father being divorced at an age at 14 years old. And so I understood and I was just, it was just so many emotions going up, uh, going through my mind. But one thing I wanna ask is, and you are, when I went through my divorce and I, and I, I went to, I went to therapy, uh, also went through therapy when I was married, but one of the discovers that I had was I was being dishonest with myself. And when I started to be honest with myself, I allowed myself to grow. My question to you is, Mike, the, the level I had to communicate differently because I was angry too. How does communication and mental health relate and how do they, do they, do they work together or I know they, they can work together, but how can you consistently make them work together? Yeah. So, um, I mentioned earlier, um, 
you know, this notion of uh, being irritable or irritability. Irritability is a symptom of depression. It's also a symptom of trauma. Yeah. Right? So how does irritability get expressed? It get expressed oftentimes through communication. Mm-hmm. So therein, therein lies the link between mental health and communication. Mm-hmm. Now, is that always the case? Because I've been locked up with my parents and my wife up in this house, and I'm a little bit irritable. <laughs> so that, can I, I mean, hey. you know, is that strictly dissociated with depression, or maybe it has? I don't know. No, I'm not, no, I mean, I think that this is, first of all, an unprecedented time, unlike anything we've ever seen in our lives. Absolutely. So, you know, put an asterisk beside this time point in our lives in terms of how we are functioning and showing up to to others like we're, we're all on edge you know because this has been actually traumatizing mm-hmm. in some ways right and so i think then that we should um you know relax our expectations of ourselves a little bit right now and be a little bit more supportive and, you know, relaxing of the sort of pressure to be this, that, or the other, because we're all going through um, an unprecedented stress. And how would you say, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Candace Anderson. She's, uh, she's out of DC. You know, Candace, I'm not, I'm not sure if you know her, but uh, she's a good person. I had this same con- uh, uh, conversation with her um, she's a licensed professional, uh, I guess, licensed in the mental health area where she, I asked her about how do you, in this particular time period with this crisis, how is it best to manage it? You know, I understand based on the, the, the things you said earlier, mm-hmm. but how do you talk to your kids? Uh, how do you talk to your family about, you know, what's going on now and given the uncertainty of the times? Yeah, I mean, I think with your kids, you just be honest with them about what's going on. You want to get a sense of how they understand, um, you know, what's happening, what COVID means, and, and literally explain to them what it is, you know, um, and then, you know, determine if they have any questions about it. And you should also be honest with them about the fact that it is um, a very serious condition to, this, to the extent that uh, people can, can, can die from it. Um, and that's why we're being um, cautioned around, you know, wearing masks and social distancing and all of that sort of stuff, right? And kids are concerned about whether, um, you know, that life is always going to be like this. And I think we can safely say to them that, no, it's not. You know, this is um, uh, a time period that we're going through and experiencing COVID that uh, calculations suggest that. It, it may not last no more than about 18 months to two years or whatever the case may be. But I think just having like candid conversations with them about it is really important. What I would not recommend is that you sit your kid down in front of a TV and let the, and let the TV teach them about what COVID or Corona is, right? Like that's your responsibility as, as a parent mm-hmm. to, you know, share with them and be the main source of information because they, they cannot, ask the the, the, t- the television questions, you know, so they have to be able to, you know, yeah, they have to be able to, you know, go over those those things with you. And I, so I think just, you know, being honest and candid about what's happening is is incredibly important. And I actually think the COVID situation is good for my mental health, honestly. I'm, I've been stress-free, honestly, man. I, have, I don't miss airplanes. I don't even miss my local bar, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and maybe I was just generously tired and didn't know it, but I've been feeling great, man. It's been good being at home with the wife and not traveling so much and just relaxed, you know? Yeah, man, I think it's something uh, to be sad for how it has shut us down. <laughs> and, uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, and allowed us to, yeah, focus on, Focus on what's important. What happened, dog? Hey, 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 Mike. Let me. Uh, I want to circle back to some more of the uh, therapy and counseling, and a word that you used earlier because uh, 
probably will help us all as, as well as anybody who's viewing this, use the word vulnerability in the counseling. Uh, and I think it was, again, was pertaining to Chuck asking about the communication. I know when I went through different forms of counseling, I did premarital counseling, I did counseling in my marriage, five different types of counseling, which I don't necessarily get into right now. But um, one of the things I got from it by being honest and vulnerable was it wasn't about proving me right or wrong in those therapy and counseling sessions. It was to help get me to a point of realizing, I guess, the root of different issues. And like you mentioned, you went through counseling that brought some light to your dad contributing to some of your behavior. That's one of the things that came out uh, for me in my counseling, the root of different things. So how, what would you say to someone to encourage them that they were to take on counseling to be vulnerable so they can really get at the root of things versus trying to prove to themselves, well, I was right in what happened here. You know what I mean? Got to pull back them layers. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, presumably, Quasi, the whole point of it is to have objective feedback mm -hmm. and, um, and a third party that has no bearing on the outcome, but that can, you know, listen down the middle, if you will, mm -hmm. and be able to, if you're talking about, you know, sort of a couple's uh, therapy uh, situation, mm -hmm. you want that person, um, you, you know, you, you to, to, to give you unbiased, um, down the middle feedback, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that if you are really interested in being your best self, then you're going to be as vulnerable as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, if you don't really care about improving or, 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 or being a better person, then, you know, you're wasting your time and your money. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I think that you just have to embrace it as an opportunity to, to become better. Yeah. You know, and when you become better or know better, you do better. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Man. Well, yeah. I, I say this every week and it's, it never ceases to amaze me. The level of intellect in this, in this collection of brothers we have here. Y'all are some smart brothers, man. And uh, I'm just glad to have been lucky enough to be put on that first floor of Hubert Hall my freshman year. <laughs> I'm such be a part of this group. But uh, Dr. Lindsay, man, uh, we can, words cannot express the level of gratitude we, uh, we have you coming on today to, to, you know, put these words out and to share your knowledge and expertise. And uh, like I said, man, it's just, I'm glad to know you as a friend and to, you know, I've seen you in non-professional capacities. But it's always fascinating when you see one of your dudes rocking it out in a professional level. Because if y'all heard me talking to my clients, y'all would be amazed. Just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not that much of a contrast for you, but I just wanted to say, man, we appreciate you coming on to your podcast and, uh, and being a part and, and giving us that information today, man. Anybody got any, uh, any parting shots? Man, this was a good one. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think we could talk for hours on this one. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, I was talking about my dad and being able to go through that, through that therapy, um, you know, helped me to have a, a great relationship with my dad before, um, you know, as I grew up and, you know, to my adulthood and before my dad died. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that, um, you know, it, it, it really came full circle for me. And so, you know, I appreciate that, that yeah, time I, in my life. I agree with you, Mike. I got a, I got a better relationship with my father now at 47 years old than I did when I was younger. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I mean, he's, he's in his mid seventies, you know, he don't, he ain't on, he going down that downstream right now. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's, it's good. It's good. I can honestly say it's good. Find me a damn uh, mental health professional because I know my ass is crazy. That's great. That's yeah, great. See if I can get myself straightened out. That's great, man. I mean, the, pro the fact of the matter is that we all have things yeah. that we're struggling with, so no one is immune to that. I'm not read up on the symptoms. I know it's, I know some shit wrong with me. <laughs> 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 Seems like it's black men 
we have uh, comorbidities chasing us. We've got, you know, environmental issues, our neighborhood issues. There's a variety of things that create uh, mental health traps for us, not to mention our ego, machismo, all of that kind of stuff. I, basically, we just need to check our ass and go get a mental health professional and get some help. And it's not, and, and help is probably the wrong word. We should treat a, a mental health uh, situation just like we treat a, a bad back or, or a sore knee or whatever. Yeah. The brain is part of your body. We need to just treat it as such. So it's not like I need to seek help. I'm just going to get my knee checked out, my head checked out. Yeah. So, you know, again, I think um, we had a lot of good points raised today. Dr. Lindsay, you know, dropped the, dropped the knowledge on us. And, uh, man, I think, though, as we wrap this one up and we're getting ready to roll into the last episodes, the last dance, that should be the topic for next week. And uh, we look forward to y'all. Y'all are going to look forward to next week as well. It won't be as good as this week. But we'll see if we can get Dr. Lindsay back so he can see we can behave ourselves. <laughs> exactly. See, Mike, no F bombs or nothing today, Mike. See that? Hey, yeah, man. No, no, we're the guys over this. <laughs> <laughs> you today. I love it. Uh, okay. Dang.